Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to this very special edition of the Empire Podcast. David Fincher is one of the greatest directors playing his trade today with a string of classics under his belt including Seven, Fight Club, Zodiac and The Social Network to name but four. Uh, a few years ago he worked with Netflix on their groundbreaking foray into original television, House of Cards and clearly he liked the experience so much that he's teamed up with them again for a new procedural thriller called Mindhunter, which is streaming now. Uh, Fincher came into London last week, so we sent our very own Mindhunter, Helen O'Hara, along to talk to him. Uh, it was a long old chat, which is why we thought we'd give it its own slot. So here it is. A very special interview with the great David Fincher. Enjoy. Welcome to the Empire Podcast, David Fincher. Thanks for joining us. Oh, it's nice to be here. So I watched the first two episodes of Mindhunter uh-huh. uh, last night. That's all I've seen. That's uh-huh. all I think anyone has at the yep. moment, apart from you, I'm guessing. I have seen all 10 yeah. <laughs> in many, many, many different iterations. So how long has it taken to get to this point? It's been two years, uh, the the production, from, from kind of the moment we said, uh, yes, the moment Netflix said, yes, we want to see this as a show, it's been, we started spending money two years ago, but we, but Charlize sent me the, um, the John Douglas material in 2009, 2010, something wow. like that. That's a really long time then. It takes yeah. a while. It does. Um, I mean, I was going to ask, you know, you, you were sort of one of the Netflix pioneers, you know, with, with House of Cards, one of the first sort of big productions that, that they'd put on the themselves. The first guinea pig. The first guinea pig. Has it, has it changed much? Has there been a bit of a... Um, well, it's a much bigger, bigger operation. Yeah. Um, there's more people. But um, <laughs> no, fundamentally, I, 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 I can't say it has. No, they, they have a very wide and varied palette mm. do you binge things yourself i have you know not not recently right i mean I, I i i mean i think the the moment that it was broached that house of cards could be um presented all at one time you know one of the arguments that i had for it um with kevin and kevin's partner and Kevin's representatives was that was my experience of Breaking Bad. You know, I, I, I didn't really, I didn't even see the pilot till it was season three or four. And I remember, you know, saving it all to, to disc recorder and, and watching it then. Yeah. I was the same. I think a lot of people picked up on Breaking Bad quite late. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, it was that thing of, you know, there was a word of mouth and then there's word of mouth from your most, close confidants you know there's the there's the word on the street and then there's the people who take you aside and say you are a cultural dinosaur if you don't do this (laughs) i've had that with the good place recently everyone's been telling me i have to watch the good place really yeah Hmm. and it lived up to it so really yeah um so i mean i guess what was the sort of process of developing something like this because it is I mean you, you've talked to yourself in the past about it being quite sort of talky and yeah. a lot of it the action is interviews actually well so I think I think if anybody knows anything about me I'm not afraid of talk um, I it, it came to me as as the single book and, and and trying to find an adaptation of that of a way into an adaptation of that book and we had we took a swing uh, with a with a with a writer in 2010, 2011, something like that, and 
um, it was, it just wasn't what I kind of thought it should be. It, it was much more of a, it was much more of a television show, to be honest with you. It was extremely professionally done. It was, you know, it was a page turner, it was a ripping yarn and all that, but it just had, um, elements of it that, you know, a side, B side way of, of sort of navigating the material that I, I wasn't personally interested in. And, um, Charlize said to me, there's a writer I want you to meet. Um, his name is Joe Penhall and, and he wrote the road and she, apparently there was a, there was a lot of rehearsal. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how John likes to work, but there was a lot of rehearsal and then those, um, that, that stuff was sort of blended into the script and she had had a hand in at least developing the parts of the narrative that she was in. And so she had a relationship with Joe and, and Joe came in and kind of took all the materials, went away for a couple of months, um, wrote some emails and said, here's what I'm thinking. Then finally, had a handle on it and he came back and pitched us this idea of you know I don't want to deal with John Douglas and Robert Rest I want to I want to do I feel like I have to dramatize the whole thing I th feel like I have to take what wrestler meant to behavioral sciences what Douglas meant to profiling and we need to be able to apportion um, as, as I see fit, um, the attributes that, that, that need to be assigned in order for the characters to make sense and, and how they kind of ricocheted off each other and how they navigated this terrain. And, you know, I mean, we kind of instantly agreed with him. It was, it was staring everybody in the face and he was the first person to just say, I can't be, be <laughs> I can't be beholden to the facts, and <laughs> and I agreed with him. I, I I just think it what he came up with was something that was, um, outside the series of interviews, uh, from my standpoint, more understandable. Mm -hmm. uh, looking back, more understandable um, as entertainment, right? And um, so he then he wrote a gigantic Bible and which we encouraged him to make as fractal and detailed as possible. And then we wrote 10 scripts and brought them back to, uh, Cindy and Ted and, and sort of flew them up the flagpole and they said, great, go. Wow. But you kept the real killers, which is interesting. Yes, we tried wherever possible. I mean, I, I think, look, you know, you say Edmund Kemper, there are people who immediately get wide-eyed and fascinated, and I'm sure that there are still people who were terrorized by what happened in Santa Cruz in the 19, early 1970s who wouldn't have been appreciated being rolled into our story. Yeah. And so we changed the names of the victims. Obviously we, we didn't with Berkowitz because it was, you know, it's in, you know, six daily, huge daily, it was in six huge daily papers. But, um, but with when things were, whenever we were dealing with something that was, you know, kind of rural or not particularly well known, you know, we tried to, there's no use in punishing the relatives of victims. 
Um, so we tried to sort of stay away from that. Um, obviously with, you know, Manson figures into the second season and, and you can't, you know, you can't say Manson without saying Tate LaBianca. So that'll be, that'll be tougher. Yeah, I think so. I mean, those scenes with, um, with Kemper though are, are stunning because they will turn on a dime from, from really very funny and and almost sort of charming to the most terrifying thing you've ever heard in your life. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a heck of a thing. Well, I've heard more terrifying things, but. Oh God. (laughs) No, I think it's, I, I think that, you know, they are kind of like little one act plays, you know, they are, they are, they're sketches, you know, they're, and, and, you know, we, we, we didn't want it to be serial killer of the week, but, but by the same token, part of what they're trying to codify, what they're trying to understand, what they're trying to pigeonhole, you know, in, in it's most sort of demeaning is, is who these people are and where they fit into the, you know, where they fit into their particular filing cabinet mm-hmm. at the FBI. So, um, um, so part of, they are disarming. You know, you can't get somebody to get inside. You can't get somebody to hitchhike with you if you don't have the ability to, if you don't have some charm, if you don't have, you know. Um, so I think we wanted to show that. A lot of the stuff that Kemper says is on record. It's 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 not as though that even required much uh, research. Um, and he is oddly... Um, eloquent you know in a way about even his own um you know sort of empathetic shortcomings um but there's also there's an aspect to his sharing that you know can't be written off as anything other than a kind of narcissism Mm -hmm. and and so anybody i think who puts their sort of sexual gratification above uh, the importance of another person breathing <laughs> has kind of, you know, they've sort of recused themselves of, <laughs> of, of certain respects. Um, but that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to talk about the um, uh, compelling and yet appalling nature of these conversations. Mm-hmm. And certainly the first, second, third time they're being had, you know, it all, it starts very politely mm-hmm. and then it gets, um, it gets inside the work pretty quick. Yeah. And, and it is that interesting, um, the dilemma certainly in, in these two episodes of what can we, how do we empathize with these people enough to understand them without sort of getting... I think there's there's almost a fear of being tarnished by them or being too empathetic, too sympathetic with them. So you're not effective, I guess, in in catching them. Well, it's also you know the thing about the thing about people who hunt people is that they have very attuned instincts to behavior, mm-hmm. you know, and they are minutely attuned to when they're coming across appallingly and when they're coming across seductively and when they're coming across as matter of fact and you know so they you know they're they're cautious and 
calculated mm-hmm. in and and also i mean let's not forget they when you're serving <laughs> nine you know consecutive life sentences you have a lot of time <laughs> you have a lot more time than the fbi investigator across from you so this is a very uh, for me the the conversations are obviously the lifeblood mm. of the work that they're doing so it becomes sort of the lifeblood of the story about the work that these guys are doing but it's also it's a power struggle it's a it's a the dynamic between teacher and student the dynamic between you know um you know fbi agent and and um serial murderer there's there are things that they there are ways that they insist on seeing themselves Mm -hmm. that um can either be you can play into it or you can call them on it you can offer resistance and see how they respond and so to me it was uh, it's an elaborate kind of game of chess yeah and and you know at at the core of it the the notion that there were people within you know this massive bureaucracy who saw the value in even if they couldn't sympathize with them, mm. that um, that they needed to empathize with them in order to understand them, and in and in and in understanding them, they would have a greater understanding of of the personal signature of the subconscious and how it and how it informs. You know, these guys in a lot of cases are working in incredible haste. Mm. You know, they've done something unconscionable and they need to, you know, they need to tidy up pretty quickly. So they've thought this stuff through, you know, they've, they've kind of, and, and part of what our heroes are, heroes, (laughs) part of, part of what our, and our protagonists are, um, weighing is, you know, are we less than human if we are feigning empathy with somebody who's obviously a monster? Yeah. Are we are we worse off if we're not feigning the empathy, if we actually feel it? And that's kind of the that's kind of the um frisson. Yes. <laughs> I think that's that's there already. So tell me about then the, the protagonists, let's say. So, you know, Jonathan has the most kind of open, boyish face, yeah. which is not what we sort of associate with, you know, a, a, a trained, very expert, kind of ruthless FBI man. Well, um, you know, this is part of the part of the design of the drama. I mean, we're, we're, we're kind of picking off at the end. We're picking up the the story at the end of Hoover's FBI. Hoover's been dead for six years um, when the show starts and probably fairly hands-off for seven or eight because he was not well in the last couple of years. Um, and it's it's really also the end of Melvin Purvis G-Man. You know, it's it's the the idealized um, 
Hoover boy, you know, and and here are these guys who are looking around and, you know, post Watergate, post Son of Sam, and they're kind of saying, you know, we know how to pursue people across state lines. We know how to fire Tommy guns. We know how to serve search warrants. We know how to, you know, lock down a block and and face off against Babyface Nelson. But we don't understand people hunting other people on the fringes of society. And so how do we how do we battle this if we don't really know what it is they're they're obviously angry. There's obviously a lot of sort of rage against civilization in some kind of way. And yet we don't know they're impossible to anticipate because we don't know from whence they come and we don't know what they're trying to exercise. You know, what's aside from terrorism, which is, you know, you know, Jack the Ripper, Zodiac, and, you know, all, um, Son of Sam, anybody who was writing letters to the newspapers is inciting a kind of public um, furor. And, um, but, you know, this is, this is the point in time when, when they're, when it was first noted and there became the need for a multi-jurisdictional task force that would, would be on a federal level, that the, that the feds could move in and sort of say, we will be the clearinghouse for all information and how it travels. And um, so all of this is happening sort of at the same time. And, that's, and, and that was interesting to me. Mm-hmm. You know, having, having made Zodiac and, and seeing how, you know, Benicia not talking to San Francisco, not talking to Vallejo, not talking to the Marin County Sheriff's Department. You can see how difficult in the age pre-fax machines and, yeah. you know, Vicap and Mosaic and these databases, how difficult it was just for information to travel so that you could, you don't have a serial killer until you have three murders. Mm-hmm. As soon after that third murder as you could possibly be, you need to be, you need to be starting to calculate Mm-hmm. who this person is based on their actions, who the, what kind of, um, whether they're psychosexual sadists, whether they're blitz killers, whether they're, you know, how to compartmentalize them so you can mm-hmm. understand them. And that was of interest to me, the notion that, you know, 1969 19, to 1971, that's what Zodiac was about. And then this is on the tail of that frustration and on the tail of, some pretty bad PR, yeah. You know, for the FBI, you had the SLA, the fire in Los Angeles, and you had um, obviously Watergate. You know, the the FBI was, you know, badly in need of some a shot in the arm from yeah. a PR perspective, and I think all that stuff weighs into you know the fact that behavioral sciences was given office space in the basement. And allowed to think they're impure thoughts. <laughs> there is an element of that to it, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, and, and and that was sort of fun Quarantine. for me. You know, it, it is. You know, it's it is kind of like the naughty fraternity. <laughs> So quarantine them and set them away. Um, so tell me about then Jonathan and Holt. What what made them the right sort of team? Well. I have known Holt since I was in London making Alien 3 20 years ago. 
um, longer, 25 years ago. And, um, I, he, I've just, oh, he's such a lovely man and he, and I, he came in to read and I was sort of touched by the fact that he was interested in this, you know, cause it is kind of a grouch role and so, you know, or at least it's, he's, you know, as written, he's a teeny bit of a wet blanket and, but I think what it, what it illuminated for me was the potential for, because I know Holt and I know Holt as, you know, an incredibly loving son and an incredibly sensitive artist who loves, you know, musical theater. And, you know, he's this, he's not the boxer that you would know from, from lights out. He's not that guy. He's there's, there's a lot of colors in his palette. And so it, the fact that he was reading the Bill Tench part opened up all kinds of possibilities for me in terms of thinking about where this character could go in the future. And so I went to Netflix and I said, this is the guy that I want. And they said, Oh, great. Somebody who actually has some television experience. unlike you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then Jonathan, uh, I think he was one of the first people that we videotaped and I had seen him for a social network and was, you know, smitten cause he's so, he's such a virtuosic, um, talent. Um, but we didn't cast him in social network and, and this time it was kind of like, just cause it's perfect casting doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Mm. <laughs> and are you a Frozen fan or a Hamilton fan? Or uh, I'm a Hamilton fan, but I didn't see him in Hamilton until after we'd cast him. <sighs> I, I went to, and I didn't realize that he, you know, what is he, he's on 39 seconds a night. He comes in and just gets to steal the show and wander off. And I told him, I said, you know, this is the entire, this is the antithesis of, of what you've been through. <laughs> you are in every single scene of this first season. It's literally the, the narrative is seen over your shoulder. Yeah. And it's all about, you know, the troubles that you get into. And, um, and so that was, that was a, you know, he went from doing, I don't know how many years of Hamilton where he, <laughs> where he would get up every day at 5 PM, <laughs> have a leisurely eggs Benedict the and dream. stroll to the theater. So, um, and then to go from that to, you know, four. 155 14 hour days. Ah uh, sure he was he was well rested at least so You would uh. think. <laughs> you would think. I certainly had no sympathy for him. <laughs> and tell me about Debbie as well because you've got such you know Hannah. you've got a majority FBI yeah. and a majority yeah. obviously male serial yeah. killers so you yeah. did you need someone like her? Well, we were looking for you know it's funny because of course m- my recollection of the 70s is very different from other people's rec- recollection of the 70s I, in that I was in my teens um, but I wanted I really Joe Penhall had this interesting notion um, and it's sort of become a conceit of the show that there's kind of almost 
almost everyone in Holden's life knows more about psychology than Holden. <laughs> and, and I like this idea of a guy who's fascinated with something that everyone else seems to be like, yeah, we're up to speed on this. What about you? And, and he's coming to the part. And, and, and it's something that I witnessed, you know, as a, as a child growing up in the seventies, how much of the human potential movement and the I messages and, you know, and how people communicated with one another. My father wrote for psychology today, and there were so much of this sort of influx of, of what's really going on, yeah. what's really happening. And, and to want, and people, embraced it you know over embraced it in a lot of in a lot of situations people were you know became part of it became actually to my to my way of thinking it actually became a sort of overindulgence in the 70s there was so much emphasis on what do you really mean and what are you really saying when you say that and and let's dig deeper on this and i heard a lot of that as a kid my father was a journalist. My mother was a mental health nurse. So I heard a lot of it. So to me, we were looking for somebody who could supply this kind of conduit. Yeah. And he imagined, Joe imagined her as a, as a grad student. And it gave us, um, you know, great narrative leeway to have somebody kind of come in and say, you idiot. <laughs> don't, you know about, don't you know about X, Y, or Z? And they've got they've got a great kind of flirtatious uh, first scene together, which I thought was fantastic. You, you bought it? Yeah, I really liked it. It was it was definitely one of those things. I mean, you know, when we sent the first couple of scripts out to directors because we I needed, you know, aside from Steven Soderbergh, I don't know anybody who can direct ten hours of television uh, by themselves. Um, so I had no intention of doing it. So we went looking for and and that was one of the scenes that people kind of kept responding to which is this is a joke right like this is a 13 page meet cute like you know how do you do you really expect that to it, it felt kind of his girl friday-ish in a way like just the sort of sparring oh, between them well that that would be that would be that would there's an antecedent that would make me bashful but um yeah no it's they're meant to be sparring partners in the most sort of loving way. She's not, yeah, I mean, is she, um, I can't remember. Is it, who's, is it Lori Partridge and the Partridge family who gives David Cassidy so much bullshit? Um, she, yeah, she's sort of the, yeah, the, the elder Partridge sister. Yeah. <laughs> And a lot of the directors that you brought in for this were sort of have a documentary background. So was it important to get the kind of the, the, the rhythm of it, of that or the sort of the, the feel of reality? I felt that, well, listen, each of them ha, are different in their own kind of specific way. I mean, Asif was somebody whose films, you know, they're amazing. But the notion of a lead character who kind of conducts his business with a tape recorder, mm. I think was something that Asif really responded to. I and mean, that's how he makes his films, you know, and that's the way he gets people to be at ease because he doesn't bring a crew in and put a digital camera in front of people and have to light them and put a boom mic over their head. He just has conversations with them. So I think um, that was, he knew this, you know, yeah. he knew it, inside out he understood what holden was doing and 
So that was a huge benefit to us. We could actually lean on him for that kind of stuff. Um, and Andrew Douglas, who had, you know, he's made horror movies and, and, you know, kind of timely zeitgeisty, um, um, I don't know it's not a slasher movie, but but he he's made documentaries, he's made commercials, he's an amazing still photographer, and he's a guy who I felt would kind of understand why we were putting the sort of aesthetic clamps on the show that we were. Right. And I felt that he's if if not somebody who could I mean, I think it's fairly safe to say that whatever your aesthetic photographic plan is, if you let Andrew Douglas run with it, it'll be informed to your advantage. And, and he was looking to do more narrative stuff and, and, and jumped at the chance and he's so lovely to be around. So also I really like this cast. I didn't want to put them with people that, (laughs) that were going to be mean to them or, or so I felt like I needed to find people who could support kind of what was happening, what was happening on the production side, but was happening on the narrative side. And then finally Tobias and Tobias, you know, made this movie that the first movie that I saw of his was a hijacking. And, you know, I remember calling Charlize and just saying, if he can wring this much tension out of a speakerphone, yeah, <laughs> we're going to be in good shape. Yeah. And, you know, it's a weird show. There's a lot of, it is not, these are not people running through the streets, flashing badges and brandishing guns and kicking down doors. Mm. It's take the long walk down the green mile and have a conversation with a total degenerate and <laughs> slog that away and, and file it under perv. <laughs> So, I mean, I've got to ask you, what's next for you? Because, I mean, your last film was Gone Girl, I think. So yeah. you've been, I guess, working on this since. Yeah, I worked on, I worked on a show for HBO that, that didn't see the light of day. And, and at the same time was doing this mm-hmm. and then did this. And I've been working for about a year now with Dennis Kelly on World War Z. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's still happening. I was, I was a bit worried. Well, it's not still happening. We're hoping, we're hope, you know, we're hoping to, to get a piece of material that's, you know, a reason to make a movie, not yeah. an excuse to make a movie. Yeah. Because I think you've been linked with a lot of blockbusters in recent years, and one never quite knows if it's wishful thinking on somebody's part, or if that's something that you've been kind of toying with or dabbling with. Or I don't know if that's true, but, but um, I mean, I'll take your word for it. I mean, <laughs> there, I, I develop a lot of things. You know, I have developed things in the past that have not come to fruition for whatever reason. You know, when you lay it out to the people who are going to have to pay for it, you say, it's going to cost X, Y, and Z, and here's why. And they say, oh, can't you do it for $50 million less? And at some point you have to say, no, not, not really. really. I mean, that, you know, Utopia was something that at HBO that I desperately wanted to do. And I thought we had really, really good scripts and a great cast and we were getting ready to do that. And, you know, it came down to $9 million. And, you know, in the end, when you actually kind of lay it all out, you know, $9 million in the scheme of things doesn't sound like a, you know, like a huge discrepancy between what we wanted to do and what they wanted to pay for. But, um, 
you know, when you cut $9 million out of $100 million, you 10% is not 10% in filmmaking. You know, in filmmaking terms, you're going to have the same amount of drivers, mm-hmm. you're going to have the same amount of accountants, you're going to have the same amount of costumers, you're going to have the same amount of stunt people. You're going to, you know, you, the only thing that, the only area that's going to have to shrink by 10% is the amount of time that you have yeah. with the actors. Mm-hmm. And it was a real, it was a, you know, it was funny because, um, listen, it had already been made for far less than $10 million, I think. Um, but our version of it was we were attempting to, uh, we were attempting to do something that would allow HBO to run something in the summer. Mm-hmm. during kind of, you know, spandex blockbuster tentpole time. And and we wanted to have, I, I wanted to make a show that would sort of rival that, rival the tentpole movies, maybe not in terms of how much CG or how much of the universe is going to explode, but <laughs> but in terms of twists and turns and 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 the material... Uh, Gillian Flynn wrote the scripts and it was, you know, it's a road movie. You know, they go from one place to the next place. They burn that place to the ground and they go to the next place. They shave their heads and dye their hair and get tattoos and then burn that place to the ground. So it's not, it wasn't cheers, you know, it wasn't like you build the bar (laughs) and then generate some pages and the cast comes in and reads the lines. It's, it's, um, which is enormously difficult, but this was, this was, this was inherently chronological mm-hmm. and any time that you sort of impose a chronology to film production things become you know because you literally can't finish you can't go to the next scene until you finish the scene in the kitchen that has to be burned to the ground yeah you have to make sure you have it done now you can burn it to the ground <laughs> i mean you are rightly or wrongly infamous for for Kubrickian levels of takes in, in your filmmaking, which may may not be fair. But is that something that you've had to very much kind of be careful of in TV for, for just that reason, for the budget, budgetary reason? No. I, I mean, uh, uh, the... I mean, House of Cards, I don't know. The, I think that that's blown out of proportion. I, th- I think that that's probably... Not in this instance, but in a lot of cases, it's lazy journalism. But um, I think it's, I feel like the time in front of the camera is, that's the important part of your job. And influencing how people can think about those moments. Is there is there another idea that can be dovetailed into is there is there something that's happening when this character turns their back on the other character and is sure that the conversation is over is there a moment where the character has their has the character who's been sort of left behind do they attempt to rekindle the conversation you know um i like to explore those things you know and 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 that takes oftentimes it takes the time to play, yeah. you know, I don't have an, I don't, th- certainly in this show, there wasn't an inordinate amount of reset time, you mm-hmm. know, where there were days when we would have, you know, the, the Jerry Brudos scene, that's an 11 page chat 
three guys sitting at a picnic table. Yeah. And it's tricky. You know, it's tricky. There was, it was, um, we had to reshoot parts of it because the, when we cut it together, we realized the construction of how they got from one idea to the next idea to the next idea to the idea after that was just lacking. There was some tension that was just missing. So we had to kind of go back in and, and, and it's a very conversation can be a very tricky Mm -hmm. dynamic. Um, so on days like that, we haven't let, you know, I think we shot that for a day and a half or two days. Um, you know, it's a lot of, yeah. you know, to get enough setups for three people over 11 pages, you know, you're going to shoot 30, 40 setups yeah. in order to have, and, it, and it's a big space, you know, it's in a basketball court or, or in a kind of, ca- you know, this octagon cage inside this calisthenics room. But, um, it required, you know, you had to shoot outside the cage and then you had to open up the walls of the cage and then you had to bring all the equipment inside, you know, so I don't think that it's, you know, as they say, it's not the time it takes to take the takes. It's the time it takes between the takes. It takes time. So <laughs> that, you know, to shoot another four or five takes. Yeah. I mean, an 11 page scene, another four or five takes can be another 40 minutes. Yeah. But um, if you're ready to go and you, you know, you can do it. I don't think it makes much sense not to bring actors in to act. Yeah. You know, I feel like they spend an inordinate amount of time waiting. waiting. Yeah. And so I think, you know, there's the school of thought. And I think for journalists and for people outside our, our industry or outside our workaday world, it's easy to say, well, that sounds like so much work. Well, it's, it's actually harder to stay focused and in when you're in your trailer mm. yeah. flipping through your iPad. And they do say that dinner party scenes are the hardest thing to shoot and you're essentially shooting a series full of yeah. weird well, dinner parties. Well, no. The dinner, par- <laughs> dinner party scenes are hard to shoot because of food and wine. <laughs> okay. Because of how because of where, you know, forks, knives, where it all has to end up and in order to reset. Dinner party scenes are a nightmare. Um, yeah, because you, you know, how much are they going to eat for real? <laughs> you know, what are they going to eat? You know, oh, good. Another take, another six Triscuits with foie gras. <laughs> um, so, no, there's, it, it, it's all how, it's how the cat gets skinned. But yeah, that's tricky. You know, you get a long table and you put six characters in it and you just forced, you know, 42 setups. Yeah. Ouch. Um, I mean, y- just in, in terms of the blockbuster thing, just because we had the Star Wars trailer yesterday, you've got a history with the franchise. You know, you were top of everybody's wish list when the most recent job came up. <sighs> Any temptation to go back to something like that? Uh, no, I talked to Kathy about that. And, and, and I mean, look, it's a, it's a plum assignment. Mm. You know, it does not, you know... I don't know what's worse, being George Lucas on the set of the first one where everybody's going, Alderaan, what the hell is this? You know, where everyone's making fun of these, you know, Tatooine is a Tatooine. Is that how you pronounce that? You know, I'm sure that was an excruciating, 
you know year for for a third time director um but i can't imagine the kind of intestinal fortitude once one would have to have following up the success of these last two is it two or three mm-hmm. yeah um you know it takes th- th- that's a whole other level of like you know one is you have to you know you're going to have to endure the withering abuse of Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher and the other one is <laughs> you have to live up to you know a, a billion or a billion five and 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 that becomes its own kind of pressure mm. um i think it i think kirshner had the the good job you know he had pretty great script and he had he had the middle story he didn't have to worry about he knew he didn't have to worry about where it started and he didn't have to worry about where it ended because there was no expectation that this was all and he had the great reveal yeah and um and so i think it's tricky to that would be a that would be um you'd have to really clear your head i think yeah to, to you'd have to really be sure this is what you want to do because either way it's two years of your life 14 yeah. hours a day seven days a week there's no getting around it definitely and it looks like you've got your hands full in the near future with this anyway yeah with a lot of things <laughs> right. well David Fincher thank you so much Cheers. thank you that was David Fincher talking to Helen O'Hara and that is it for our David Fincher interview uh, special. Uh, keep your ears peeled for more podcast specials coming your way over the next few weeks including a Red Dwarf special uh, with the cast of that show. Uh, Thor Ragnarok, a spoiler special for that with the director Taika Waititi and uh, hopefully more beyond that as well. And of course, there's the regular podcast every Friday afternoon or evening. Or night, depending on how busy we get. But it will be every Friday, uh, if you don't already listen to that. Uh, Until next time, I've been Chris Hewitt. Thanks for listening.